Avengers, assemble. In the wake of Endgame, some were lost, others regained. They're good. What happens next? Stay tuned, true believers, as we try to find out. Peter Melnick. Graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. Ready? It's time for a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Danny Fingeroth, author of A Marvelous Life, the amazing story of Stan Lee, and you are listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelous, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode and introducing our very special guest, we want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on then our social media. Yeah, but next time, unusual rigmarole. Go ahead. Oh, you stop that. Go on Facebook at Facebook.com slash The Marvelists. Give us a like ski on there. Go on the Twitter and Instagram at The Marvelists. You can also find us individually on social media. I'm on a crap ton of stuff. I'm <sighs> on Instagram and Twitter at Peter Melnick. I'm on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Peter Melnick Podcaster. I'm on TikTok for God knows reason why, but that's at Peter Melnick, but better. Yes, really. And on top of that, we have somebody else in this tandem that is on social media, and his name is E. Wilson, and you can find him only on one place on inter- the Internet. Yeah. Not Internet, the Internet. The IG. Instagram. Oh, really? Yeah. Anyway, Instagram at... Eddie9193. You can also listen to us on a wide variety of streaming platforms, including TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, SoundCloud, Spotify... And they're all available for all iOS and Android devices. Oh, yeah, we're on iTunes as well. Uh-huh. Rate, review, subscribe, and be sure to share the show on social media. But with iTunes, be sure to keep it five stars, five stars, five stars, five stars, five stars, five stars. Well, and remember, four stars and below. Nope. Eddie? Nope. Eddie? Don't cut it. Just like the ice cream machine at McDonald's, it just does not no, work. No, just like the four out of five dentist survey. How about that one? No, because that doesn't work. <clears throat> but, Eddie, on, on the, the other end of the tin can and string, we are joined with a former Marvel editor, a Marvel writer, and he's the man behind the most recent Stanley biography, Danny Fingeroff. Danny, welcome back to the show. Oh, uh, great to be back. Thanks that, for having me. Thanks for putting up with that long intro, but you that know, was here we a go. Long intro, holy cow. It's like watching the movie, I've said, with the credits first. Well, that's how movies go, Eddie. They used to. They still do. Um, okay. I'm how not, many movies have you seen, Eddie, in like not, 2020? Not enough, I guess. But if you want to know who the caterer was, you got to stay all the way to the end. Yes, exactly. The animal disclaimer, right. So anyway, Danny, how's quarantine treating you? Uh, it's... Um, Weird, like with everybody. It it uh, every day is is uh, has that strange quality, like being in a comic book, perhaps. Mm-hmm. You know? um, so far, as far as so far as I can, as far as I can tell, um, nothing uh, too bad has happened uh, to me or my family. But it's you know it it it's it's scary. It's like uh, you know it's like living in some uh, science fiction dystopia. You know, you kind of, um, it's science fiction dystopia with pizza delivery. You know, that's the, <laughs> you know, it's like the end of the world. We might die tomorrow. Uh, what are you wanting a pizza? It's a very uh, strange 
reality. Yeah. So it's uh, uh, I don't know everything in perspective and just try to keep staying positive of what I've been telling people on the radio show that I do. So you have to, you know. Yeah, yeah, you have no choice. But mm-hmm. it, it is. It's. It's certainly, um, you know, considering how I spent so much of my, you know, life as a fan and as a professional storyteller, writing and reading about, you know, disasters and plagues and, uh, and the end of the world, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's not, nonetheless, it's still uh, is, is unexpected and uh, disorienting. So who knows what answers? Who knows what answers I'll give to your questions that, in my right mind, I might not have given. So it's right. So stay tuned. And I prefer the left myself. But this is book number five, if I'm not mistaken, Danny. For yourself, correct? Depends how you count. Okay. Uh, I mean, I guess there's Superman on the couch, yep. disguised as Clark Kent, the rough guide to graphic novels. Uh, what would you count? I mean, um, Stanley Universe. Is he yeah. That? Um, yeah. Okay, because there's also um, how to create comics and script to print. Uh-huh. Um, there is there are a bunch of work for hire things I did uh, that you know biographies of celebrities and so on that I don't usually count on my uh, resume, but they are out in the world. So five five seems like a reasonable uh, uh, number. You know that um, you know it, it's 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 I'd say the most. Um, the book that I did the most research and uh, interviewing for and um, fact-checking and footnote, you know, it's definitely the hardest thing I ever wrote. Well, then that ask, makes me uh, ask the question, um, is it the longest in terms of pages and the most amount of time that it took to put together? Well, you see, and by the way, the name of the book is A Marvelous Life, The Amazing Story of Stan Lee. Yep. Stanley's biography, just thought I would mention that. And actually, two other things I want to get in plug-wise is there's an audio book that I did. So if you like the, you know, if you if you make it through this interview, maybe you like the audio book. And there's a large type book if you have anybody in your uh, circle who uh, needs a large type book. Okay. Um, so the question, you know, um, uh, to ask the number of pages, it is it is the longest page-wise, but um, it's more uh, the question as an author. Uh, the question is more is the is it the most uh, number of words and it is that as well because you could you know depending on the size type you use and the size of the you know the amount of lines between space between each line and each paragraph hmm. uh, you know a book could be a lot of pages and not have that many words or if it has a lot of illustrations so it's 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 uh, many words but people tell me that the words are uh, are good words and that they go by <laughs> you know they're well chosen words and they and well they, a lot of the book, they go by quickly yeah no a lot of them we're talking a neighborhood of like three hundred and sixty ish pages right uh, until you get to the acknowledgments and that kind of stuff and and there's about eight pages worth of uh, photos which truth be told full disclosure I didn't really notice them until I just about got up to that part I, uh-huh. I cl- casually looked at the binding of the book and said oh why why does it look darker on the edge in there oh there's pictures <laughs> holy cow okay. But and they're, they're no, they just wrote on the side of the book that, that <laughs> are rarely. Uh, most of them are rarely seen, you know, yeah. rarely or never seen. Um, so that because uh, I worked hard to uh, get photos and you know get permissions from people, you know, um, I you know, and I w- way back when I signed uh, the contract for the book, you know, it had this uh, this short paragraph that said the author will be responsible 
for uh, you know for you know whatever it's six, sixteen photos or whatever it is we have there, and uh, you know you're busy negotiating so many other things on a book contract. You go like that, yeah, I'll find photos, and then of course you have to do it. And uh, I went, oh man, why did I why did I let myself agree to that? But I'm glad I'm very glad I did actually because it you know because I didn't want to uh, show the same old photos. You know, it, it, it was some extra effort to track some people and some photos down, but I, but I think there's stuff in there that uh, is not the standard stand photos that you see everywhere. I agree. And I think for your part, uh, having met you at least a couple of times at shows and whatnot and seeing photos, whether it be in the inside sleeve of the book or the picture that is with you and stand from the Wizard World convention, you're always smiling. That's your credit. I, I mean that as a compliment. Well, thank you. Um... I don't have a witty retort to that, you know. No, it wasn't meant to stump I'll, I'll you, but I was just saying, I just, you know, I take it you're, you're upbeat, positive, you know, kidding around stuff. And to that effect, uh, the shows that I have seen yet, you're always with your buddy there, Jim Salakrup. Uh, right. Well, Jim and I, uh, you know, enjoy uh, sitting together, and uh, we, kind of, we kind of have refined it to sort of a, uh, a comedy act, although yeah. I'm not sure which of us is Abbott and which is Costello or... Uh, or, or, or uh, you know, but, but somewhere, uh, you yeah, know, we, we try to give people uh, an entertaining show if, uh, when they come to see us. Now, how did the whole project come about with the Stan book? Um, the Stan book, you know, I, I, I must be honest. Um, of course, I knew, you know, I, I, I knew Stan for many years and worked with him on a lot of projects. Um, but um, I was kind of thinking about what the project should I do next and what book, uh, what topic would sell books, <laughs> you know? yeah. um, since I have an interest in feeding myself and my family and uh, keeping a roof over our heads. Um, and it seemed uh, kind of, you know, if you look at the world of comics and who's the best known, uh, there's no number two, really. I mean... As far, I mean, obviously Stan is well known. Um, I mean, there, I'm sorry. There are comic creators from across the decades who are very well known to fans and and even casual readers of comics. But as far as to the outside world, you know, people who know and love the movies uh, and TV shows and and so on. There's there's Stan Lee, and then there's nobody. I mean, we all know and love Jack Kirby. We all know and love Steve Ditko. But the average person. Um, knows the characters, but unfortunately uh, doesn't know the creators. So, so picking Stan was a no-brainer. Uh, and then uh, went through various permutations of would it be authorized, would it not be. He was, um, he said to me, uh, if I wanted to do an authorized version with anybody, it would be you, Danny. But I don't want to do an authorized. <laughs> <laughs> um, but of course, you know. So then I, you know, then I kind of spent a couple of years sending him emails every once in a while and, and he you know he he didn't want to do it but ultimately he uh um not that I needed anyone's permission but he said why don't you do an, do an unauthorized one but uh you know I won't tell people to talk to you or not talk to you but I don't want to be interviewed I've been interviewed too much nonetheless I did two lengthy interviews with him for the book <laughs> you know and uh and with about uh, 50 or 60 other people so so um so so the so it you know, it had its origins probably uh, close to a decade ago, and uh, you know, 
know, sort of, it was one of those things that was backburnered for a while, and then I think signed the contract in late 2016, and then really started focusing on it. Uh, it came, you know, the book came out uh, late last year, and uh, I'd say maybe two years before that is when is when I really just focused it and you know turned down other assignments and tried to narrow my traveling and just focus uh, on the book. Well, I can imagine, Danny, there's probably been, uh, maybe you have a better idea or not, how many times people had asked Stan, hey, I want to do a book on you. Uh, are there are there many that have that have come out before this? I only kind of sort of on the fringe know of, of a couple, maybe not exactly on Stan. He did his memoir, Excelsior, uh, something on Marvel Comics, you know, like an untold story or the rise and fall of the American comic book. But I don't know if there's been many about him especially in the way that you've done it, and I will touch on that too, because like you said, with the, with the sizing of the lettering and a lot of quoting that goes on in there too, that's more than I think I've seen anybody do or attempt. So again, going back, I don't know how many people have done a book on Stan. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of books that are, um, that are, that are kind of uh, kids' books or YA books. They're, they're, you, know, they're, um, you know, they're intended for... Um, you know, for children or, or young teenagers, and I'm sure they're fine. I haven't read all of them. Uh, and, you know, there was, um, there was a, a Spurgeon and Rayfield's book that came out uh, in, in uh, I think, maybe 2003, and Stan's own memoir that came out in 2002, and Sean Howe's book about Marvel, which, you know, which had a lot about Stan, but was not a biography of Stan by any means. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, that's, you know, and... Uh, uh, yeah, you know there there are other books that are currently out or or or, or will be coming out. I'm, I just soon I have nothing against them, but I just soon not plug them. You know. No, I, yeah, I was going to um, lead into um, something at the end is to is to have you give a little pitch to say, okay, why why do people want to buy yours? You know. Um. Well, I mean, I think what I bring to all my books, you know. Um, Starting with the Superman on the Couch and the Skies of Clark Kent and the, and the Rough Guide to Graphic Novels, is uh, I bring the point of view of somebody who's actually made comics for a living and who's worked specifically at Marvel. And uh, you know, I didn't have Stan's job, um, but I I ran the Spider-Man division. I wrote uh, hundreds of comic stories uh, for them. You know, I was in the office every day for many years. So, so I think coming from the perspective of someone who understands, you know, what Stan did do and didn't do and what having that kind of a job that he had and the kind of career he had entailed, I mean, obviously his career is unique. There's nobody uh, with, a, with a career or a life like that. I think I do bring an understanding of how the sausage is made, what's under the hood, whatever, whatever metaphor you want, yeah. you want to use. And I, and, and I think the other thing I bring... Um, is that I knew Stan. I certainly was friendly with him. We were fond of each other, but I was not in his inner circle, you know. So I think, I think I bring a knowledge, and uh, uh, you could even say an affection for the character. But I, but I don't. I try not to write the story with blinders on. Um, I, I know all the, you know, the controversy surrounding Stan and Jack and Steve and who did what when and. You know, so I try to give uh, a fair uh, airing of, 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 of all those different conflicts, um, 
you know, uh, in, 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 in the course of, of showing who Stan was, where his life fit in the world of comics, where his world, where his life and career fit in the history of uh, of America and 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 uh, and in pop culture in particular, so I so I think it gives a pretty good context. I tried to to kind of um, walk a, a a fine line with the balance. I wanted the book to not be so inside baseball that it would be only for comic fans. I wanted people who who. Um, had a more casual interest in, you know, in Marvel or in, and, and or in Stan to be able to read it. But I also wanted there to be enough substance for people who were fans. You know, I think there is new stuff that people didn't know or new perspectives. So that was uh, that, the, both those things were in, were, were in my mind. Um, and uh, I, I guess only you know only through reading it can you tell if I succeeded. Well, but that was. That was those are my aims. What I did get out of going through, if not you know, pervading through most, if not all of it, and at, and towards the end, referencing yourself and your experiences, and I was waiting for like, well, when when going when Danny going to talk about himself a little bit here, you know, whatever, which is perfectly right to do. I'm not you know saying that's a bad thing, but I got the sense overall that you were the like on the spot reporter, you know, here's what happened, here, you know, here's the story, how it ha- how it unfolded, kind of thing. And maybe I'm off base, but that's kind of the sense I got. Well, it would have been. I mean, look. Obviously, I couldn't. I couldn't write that way about things that happened before I was born or when I was ten years old. Um, but that. But but you're right. That was that was a challenge, because of course some of the events I write about, I was there for or personally involved with or or or, or witness to. Um, so of course I'm going to tell it from my own perspective. I'm sure there are other people. With, well, you know, who were there might have other perspectives. But but it seemed. It seemed a little disingenuous to to write about um, and occasionally, you know, occasionally in the book I do uh, refer to myself as this author, you know. But yeah. but at a certain point where there are things that I'm literally in the room for or that literally involve me, I felt that uh, to refer to you know to I or me was uh, was not only appropriate but necessary. You know, it just. Um, you know, it it didn't uh, it didn't seem to serve any purpose to pretend. Uh, I mean, I still try to maintain uh, an authorial objectivity, but to try to pretend that I wasn't there or that these events didn't affect me would would have uh, would have been silly. And you know, you had mentioned a little bit earlier Stan Lee the character, and the one part in the book that you know caught my attention was Stan writing on the wall, or not on the wall, on the uh, ceiling of his old school. Stan Lee is God, and then it turns out, you know, he kind of misremembered that, and it was intended to, he meant to say, Stanley Lieber. Right. With that whole thing, when do you feel was the moment that Stan Lee became Stan Lee the character? Um, I, I think it happened in phases. Um, I think he was always a big personality. You know, I mean, everybody who knew anybody who knew him as a kid or as a, a young adult or in school or or or, or, or just you know um, socializing in, in Long Island, um, you know, describes him as a as a big personality, a guy who you know loved to you know entertain people and would do or say almost anything for a laugh and very social. So I think at I think I think at a certain point. 
Uh, and you can see hints of it even in even in the 40s and 50s. And anytime there's there's you know, messages from the editor or or from the voice of uh, Timely or Marvel or Atlas, whatever they were calling themselves at a given time, I think it. I think what what drew me in and a lot of people of my generation as a kid was that Stan. I think consciously, but maybe unconsciously, decided that that person that was known to his family and friends would be, he would use a version of that to speak to the readers. That he, that he would stop pretending to be, you know, an omniscient editor or a, you know, or, 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 or a bland, uh, you know, third person narrator, and that he would become this version of Stan that became, uh, you know, a friend to the, you know, back then it was still mostly children, reading it, but then they would also be, be kind of sophisticated and hip asides because he also knew and was going after uh, a more educated and an older audience of older high school and college students and professional people like Jerry Bales and Roy Thomas. So I think Stan took that version of who he really was and decided to share it with, um, with readers. And then, uh, and then over the years, um, just did that more... Uh, more and more. So, uh, uh, so, and then somehow along the way, those things he would say or do became uh, catchphrases or cliches or, or, or things that people expected. You know, my experience of Stan is that the person you saw on stage was not that different than the person you'd see at dinner or in the office. Just uh, the person you'd see at dinner or in the office is quieter. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you know. But I mean, it didn't. You know. I don't think he had to invent, uh, uh, you know, I remember I read a quote once where Janis Joplin, um, who I think could be very moody and, uh, and temperamental, um, you know, she, she uh, I guess, was being interviewed backstage by somebody, and she pointed to a trunk that had all the feathers and beads and, you know, and, and uh, gaudy outfits, and, and she said, well, i got to go, you know, put on Janis Joplin now, you know. I don't. I don't think Stan. I don't think Stan did that. I think Stan just kind of amped up the volume a little bit when he was uh, in public. And one of the things you know, a lot of fans, the hardcore fans, will go on saying is he always made it about himself. But the thing is, he became the voice. You know, the the physical image of Marvel Comics because, at least from my perspective of this, comic artists tend to be introverts. And as much as I love, you know, uh, Steve and Jack, they were very, you know, close-guarded, you know, to the point where we never saw pictures of Steve Ditko, you know, his entire life pretty much. But with Stan, he was a massive extrovert, and he, it's essentially, if no one else is going to do it, I'm going to do it, you know? And it made sense. For him to well, be the face it, it was, of the it company, became, not only if no one else was going to do it, no one else was available. You know, mm-hmm. so you're right. He was an extrovert. He also was fascinated with the whole um, business of advertising and marketing. He, lo- you know, yeah. but I think, you know, here's Marvel, which at one point, you know, up until the uh, late '50s, had been an enormous company. I mean, you know, I mean that's sort of one of the myths that. You know, I, I, I kind of, uh, I wouldn't say I ripped the cover off of because people have talked about it before, but 
that I certainly explore is that, you know, the wonderful Marvel myth is there was this tiny company, they put out a handful of comics, and, you know, Stan, Jack, and Steve um, came up with these revolutionary ideas, and it, and it exploded, you know, over time to become this phenomenon that's Marvel. Well, Marvel, uh, or Timely, or Atlas, as it was called, uh, until the mid-50s was putting out, like, uh, 75 or 80 titles a month. You know, and Stan had you know many editors working under him and with him, and uh, you know at various points they had there was a literal Marvel bullpen of rooms full of artists uh, uh, drawing uh, comics of all genres. Uh, superheroes are just a small part of it, um, but by but but there was a big implosion in the late fifties, and the office was Stan and a secretary and. Um, I don't even know if there was a, a full-time production staff. It might have been Stan would grab, you know, anybody, any artist coming in to drop off work and try to, like, you know, convince them to do some uh, some free uh, production work. Or he did a lot of production work. So, I mean, there was, you know, Stan was the editor, art director, um, promotion department, publicity department, advertising. I mean, you know, he... Uh, and and and, the, and Marvel, for numerous reasons, was limited to eight or so titles a month, so it, it was it was manageable. Um, but yeah, that evolved. And you're right; the other guys worked at home. They didn't have those kind of outgoing personalities. Stan enjoyed it and, and was good at it. And, and he and I think he found, you know, a way to connect with the readers uh, that was working. You know, so um, and, and plus he was the guy. Uh, again, I think because he was more extroverted, and also because he was in the office. So if somebody needed somebody to go on a radio show or a TV show or, or make a statement or to be interviewed by a reporter, um, you know, Stan was the easiest guy uh, there to do it. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I, I don't think Ditko was the kind of person who enjoyed that, and uh, maybe Kirby might have enjoyed it. Uh, a little more, but I think in general that, you know, I, I think Kirby was more, uh, you know, of necessity and, and I think by nature just was more, you know, the more time Jack spent at home drawing, the more money he earned for his family. And any time he would go, you know, might go on the radio, uh, it might be fun, but um, that was time he wasn't earning. So I think, you know, I, I think I think all these those things came together to make and then Stan became, of course, you say he's the voice and face of Marvel, but I would say he was the voice and face of comics. I, I think, uh, I, I, I think, you know, I don't think there's any other figure, you know, in comics who had the, uh, you know, there, there were certainly plenty of extroverted and and and, and affable people in, in comics, but Stan, all these factors of being in the right place at the right time. Came came together for him because uh, I, I don't you know you know I I don't know if there's a person uh, maybe Raina Telgemeier at this point who's you know the best-selling graphic novelist uh, in the country if not the world so maybe maybe for uh, younger generations people think of Raina who does all those uh, great YA novels for uh, Scholastic but I don't I don't know who who else there is who even uh, has ever you know in comic books I mean. You know, in, in back in the day when when comic strips were uh, astonishingly popular, I guess there were people like Milton Kniff and Al Cap and Charles Schultz. You know, maybe they were that well known. Um, 
but I, I don't think there's ever been anybody in that same role as Stan. No, it's more relegated to just that. It wasn't beyond the scope of, of the strip, exactly. What, uh, Danny, can you talk about in terms of when it came about and what it what it entailed, the Marvel method? The, Mar- the Marvel method is, is uh, really encompasses a, a lot of things. I mean, when I, you know, I think when Stan and his, uh, and the artists he worked uh, with uh, who co-created the characters did it, it was one thing. By the time I came, you know, I think shortly thereafter, because the Marvel method is, you know, is shorthand for saying a plot first comic creation. In other words, instead of instead of an artist working from a script that resembles a screenplay where every single panel is described and all the dialogue is written out in advance and, and in theory the writer and artist never have to speak or meet. Um, Stan and his uh, collaborators, uh, you know, uh, largely um, uh, Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby, uh, soon after that John Romita and John Buscema, and of course Larry Lieber, Stan's brother, was instrumental in uh, writing a lot of those scripts. Larry worked differently. Actually, when Larry was in the mix, it was a little different, which we can talk about uh, if you want. But um, So, you know, there would be, and, and I don't think the Marvel method worked the same way twice. I mean, there would be times when Stan, say Stan and Jack, would discuss a story. And then Jack would go home and draw it, and he'd bring it in, and Stan would write the dialogue. Um, and probably within that time frame, Jack would have changed the story around, added details. Um, Stan might have forgotten what they talked about or might have a, an idea for some other piece of, uh, of dialogue or, 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 um, or, or, or um, human interest he wanted to put in, so his dialogue would indicate that. Um, but, you know, but it varied. So there would be times when I, you know, I, th- I think it was almost always verbal. So that, you know, there's a, there's a plot for the origin of the Fantastic Four um, that, uh, of course, like everything else regarding those guys, is controversial. But it seems like Stan wrote it up, but probably after having some kind of preliminary discussion uh, with Jack. So the Marvel method was, you know, and then there would be times when Jack or Steve would just plot you know, they might have a, you know, you know, like a one or two minute conversation with Stan about the general direction and then go home and plot it, sometimes not even that. Um, so I think it was different as time went on, different with every issue. Um, but the idea is they would plot the story, uh, draw the, draw the uh, pencil, you know, pencil the pages, and Stan would write the dialogue, which in his role as editor and art director as well as writer, gave him the ability to either ask for stuff to be redrawn, to take the plot in an entirely different direction, or to have an entirely different subtext than the artist had intended. So, you know, I mean, uh, that, that's, that was the Marvel method for Stan and his collaborators. As, you know, for most, you know, I'd say for most other artists and writers at Marvel, after that, the Marvel method could mean anything from a lengthy phone conversation between the artist and the writer to the writer writing out um, an entire story um, but leaving a lot of the details out to some, you know, to some writers who would write um, extremely lengthy, detailed plots. So that, so the, you know, so the Marvel method has different meanings, but, you know, specifically 
with how Stan worked with his artists, it would very often be a casual thing, which is where, as we know, much controversy ended up arising from that. And, you know, when you say controversy with Stan, there's a lot of misconceptions that Stan's and the general public, you know, have about him. What do you feel, you know, in your research and interviewing Stan is the biggest misconception about him? Huh. You know, that's, uh, you would think I've been, I've, it's funny, I've been asked uh, that question in, a, in sort of a more general, well, it's a pretty general, I've, I've been asked that question in sort of a different version of that, but this is the most, well, I think that people, and even he would joke about it, that he, uh, you know, intentionally stole credit or hog credit or, um, you know, or somehow that that he somehow enjoyed um, seeing the guy, you know, the other guys somehow mistreated or, or lost in history. And I, and I think, uh, I don't think that, you know, I would say there a lot of times Stan would give an interview to a reporter and you know be very careful to credit his uh creative partners and then somebody at the newspaper or, or you know or the radio station would just say well that's too complicated you know we need we need a story about a we need a Charles Schultz we need a we need a, an Al Cap it's got to be we need a story about one you know one person who does this, and that's where the magic comes from, the idea that two people do it and they collaborate. You know, it just seemed for mainstream audiences, um, even now, is, is, is somehow they feel it's too much for their audience to do. So I think Stan gave more credit. I, you know, I think a thing that we'll... Uh, which is not to say he didn't have an ego. There are things he did that were not always so admirable. Um you know, he was, you know, I, I'd say the thing that I find, uh, you sometimes see people say, well, Stan took all the money for, for plot, you know, for plotting, and it should have gone to the artist. Um, a, there was no such thing as a plotting rate in those days. I mean, even when I came to Marvel in the 70s and the 80s, uh, a plot, you know, it eventually changed, but at that point, a plot literally would get 25 bucks, because uh, the assumption was the writer would write the rest of the story. But even... Even if somebody else, you know, did end up scripting the story, all the plotter got was that 25 bucks. So there was no precedent. But my my feeling is that since Stan, you know, controlled or along with Martin Goodman, was able to set the rates for his artists, I I feel that somewhere in there it was understood that if someone got a raise of X dollars per page, part of that was... Uh, for uh, for all the storytelling and and plotting they did, I have no way to prove that, but it just seemed to me human nature um, that when you're giving somebody a raise, that you take all these factors into consideration. So uh, you know, um, should Stan have said you know co-plotted by the artist? Well, you know, maybe there's an argument to be made for that. Uh, and of course, I mean, nobody. You know, even when Marvel was popular, uh, I don't think they ever imagined that in the year 2020, somebody, you know, would be sitting and actually talking about this or caring about it, you know. Yeah. I mean, it does, you know, they were, you know, uh, I think these were guys who grew up, you know, in the Depression and, uh, you know, fighting World War II and, 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 
just they were scrambling to make a living, and anything they could do to make a living was like, really, people will be talking about this in 50 years? Why, why would they do that? <laughs> what's, the, what's the, you know, I mean, if you're not literally Mark Twain or John Steinbeck, what's the, what's, what, you know, what's the example for people talking about your work 50 years later? And ironically, Stan and Jack ended up doing what is, you know, the comic book equivalent of the great American novel with the Fantastic Four. You know, a lot of people have gone on saying that, and it's accurate. Uh, yeah, you know, that, that that's really an unprecedented thing, that they worked together that long on, on uh, you know, and you, you can sort of see it go through phases where their each of their attention and and commitment wavered but yeah they went through more than 100 issues um you know and i don't you know they had a complicated history that stretched back to 1940 um so and and it wasn't always a good history you know the you know the last place jack kirby wanted to work wanted to end up working in 19 you know i think 58 when he went back pretty much full-time to Marvel, was working for Martin Goodman and Stan Lee. He'd left Marvel in a huff in uh, 1942, you know, but, uh, and the company almost disappeared at least once in that interim. You know, so they were, they were all kind of, um, none of you know, not, they, they were all products of the circumstances that they couldn't have foreseen, um, and, yet, and yet they ended up you know, I think I think look, I think all three of them. I think Stan and Jack and Stan and Steve had these very complicated relationships um, where they uh, loved each other, hated each other. Uh, uh, I, I think felt let down or disappointed by each other. You know, and, you know these these were long relationships and complicated ones. And you know, I mean, ultimately um, the work they they come up they came up with the characters they came up with have clearly stood the test of time and they're more popular than than ever in 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 movies tv video games um slurpy cups (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i'm not sure if that answers your question but uh but i've run out i've run out of uh Well, I think it worked. <laughs> all right, okay, good, good deal. Moving along. Uh, but what you touched on before, Danny, about Marvel like going under and stuff, and uh, in the little notes I took from when I was reading along, said, well, besides a few things that I didn't personally know or realize about Stan, like, in, for example, uh, trying to escort Eleanor Roosevelt to a seat at the Rivoli Theater <laughs> in the city and uh, as an usher in, like, 1939 and, and falling, um, and the whole thing with not serving in World War II, even though he, he did enlist in, in uh, late '42. Got into radio communications. Well, um, he did serve in the army. He just didn't get sent overseas. I mean. Over that's there you go. Okay, uh, he wrote radio shows apparently for about a year or two. Uh, but I could see that as being like an early an early start, and then uh, being a, a regular guest with with Jack Kirby on WBAI. But the part I'm getting up to is the time in was it 1976? I think where where it said as you wrote that Marvel Comics was saved by of all things Star Wars. Um, well, you know, look, comics, you know, if you've been in the business or just follow the history, you know, comics have been dying since at least 1945. Mm. Um, certainly when I entered the business in the late 70s, um, the feeling, which was just, I guess, just around the Star Wars time, but even then the feeling was 
well, you know, this is a quaint folk art that, you know, we're now at the tail end of, and it's nice we got to work here, but, you know, uh, it's obviously going away, and the last person out, please turn out the lights. Well, real quick, uh, let me interject. Is yeah. that, was it because of those times going on, or what was the impetus for you wanting to get into this? Um, I'd been a comic fan as a kid. I was a um, kind of a liberal arts major in college. Um I kept up with comics in terms of the undergrounds and Harvey Picard's work and Will Eisner's work, but I wasn't really following Marvel or DC at the time. But I, you know, I grew up with and was from New York City. I came home, uh, not you know, to New York. Not sure what I wanted to do. Uh, I had, you know, a contact to get me in the door for an informational tour at Marvel. I thought, gee, it might be fun to work at Marvel Comics and in the comic business for a few months till I figure out what I'm going to do. Mm. And uh, I went on that informational tour and ended up about um, six months later getting an entry-level job as uh, Larry Lieber's assistant, Stan's brother's assistant in what was called the British Department, putting out stuff like Captain Britain, um, and, uh, and, but mostly reefer material in a, in a, in a kind of um, anthology format um, in black and white for England. And, and so I got into the business, and it seemed like a good fit, and I liked the people, and I liked the work, and so I kind of you know, made my way through the company, eventually becoming an assistant and uh, on the X-Men books with Louise uh, Jones, now Louise Simonson, and eventually, you know, so, uh, so it, it, it um, and I didn't, I have to admit, I didn't know enough about comics history. It's only in retrospect that I can see that, you know, people were feeling that way, you know. Um, certainly there was... The office was busy. They were putting out, you know, a lot of comics. But I think Star Wars came along um, when when there was not much profit made from the comics, and there wasn't even much made from licensing and merchandising. Um, and but somehow George Lucas felt it was important um, that there be a Marvel, that there be a comic book version of Star Wars, because I guess he felt that Marvel and Star Wars would have a lot of common audience. And so uh, they, uh, you know, and Stan was very wary. Stan was publisher at that point. And um, traditionally, science fiction comic books did not do very well. And so he actually turned it down at least once. But Roy Thomas had faith in it. And Roy understood that it would be, that it wasn't going to be a hard science fiction uh, book, but it would be more like what they call a space opera, you know, like a, like a Western or, you know, it would be more about the people and the personalities and the and their interaction than about the hardware, you know, although certainly the special effects were important. So he talked Stan into it, and I think Lucas actually uh, let them uh, do the comic with no licensing fee, you know, at least for, at least for a time, you know, I think it was in, the, in the very early days. So Marvel was really, wasn't risking... Uh, that much, you know, they they uh, would benefit from the visibility of the movie, and they wouldn't have to pay much or anything to Lucasfilm. So that was, you know, and 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 that seemed to be at a point where Marvel had come out of a, a money losing period, and that you know was were putting out a lot of different kinds of magazines, black and white horror magazines, and so on, just because they didn't know what would sell, and they were starting to get involved with Hollywood, and Stan hadn't moved out there yet. But I think Star Wars was a big part of just getting some, you know, cash in the till at Marvel at a time when there was no guarantee that the comics were gonna were gonna do that in a big way. 
Now, in regards to, you know, you just mentioned earlier, by the way, with uh, you were getting into comics through Harvey Picar and people like that. Tell me there would not have, it would have been an amazing collaboration between him and Stan, you know, down the line, if it had happened. Huh. Well, you know, Harvey, I think, had a sentimental attachment to uh, the comics of his childhood, but I don't think he was especially, you know, at, at one point they, there was a story, I think, uh, I think um, where, where Harvey met the Hulk, but that was, that was when Harvey had, beat, had had some measure of success. Um, I, I, but, I mean, it's interesting that you picked up on that, because I one time gave a talk, and I, and I should really write this up as a chapter in a book or some kind of, you know, YouTube presentation, I gave a talk that was called Stan Lee, Harvey Picar, and the Illusion of Intimacy, hmm. and uh, which is sort of a highfalutin kind of academic way of saying that, you know, with both of those guys, and you actually mentioned WBAI before, so I don't know if you're old enough to remember some of the, uh, the uh, talk radio hosts on WBAI, but there's a, you know, they also achieved this uh, too, where there's, you know, sometimes you look at a work of art, you know, or you or you go to a, or you experience a story, uh, or 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 a movie or a TV show, and, and you admire it and you're moved by it, but you don't have the illusion that you're like best friends with the director or the or the star. You know, you kind of know there's that there's that barrier. You know, they're the entertainers and the storytellers, and you are the consumer. You know, or the right. or the audience. But but both Stan and Harvey had a way. Uh, of making you feel that you knew them to a certain degree, and that you know, uh, I think Harvey did it because his his work was very much about his life, and he often talked directly to the reader, you know, and and so he, you know, but but uh, but but that was just a version of Harvey, you know. I mean, I I knew Harvey a little bit, but I knew him well enough, you know, to know that the guy who saw in the comics was just, you know, was a an aspect of him or a public version of that and stand the same way i think the you know i think being you know nine ten eleven twelve years old and reading even before the bullpen bulletins were codified in a single page stan would write the responses to every single letter column every single letter and every single letter column and even if even if a lot of it was involved with promoting something else the company was putting out he would read he would phrase it differently he'd have a wisecrack for um for, for for every uh, every reader or and it was and it was a voice that you know was clear it, it was a neat trick that he pulled it off that he could simultaneously be Stan he could be the third person editor he could be speaking on behalf of the team of Stan and Jack or Stan and Steve he could even be talking as if he were just a fan and he again I don't think he I would say I wouldn't say he studied. I don't think he took a course in it, but I think after so many years, after being in the business for over 20 years when Marvel started, he had this instinct. Um, but but it's not unlike what Harvey did or, or what anybody does, I, you know, um, you know, whose craft and whose art involves making you think you know them personally, and and uh, and they both in different ways, Stan and Harvey. So I, you know, I think Harvey was not especially interested in you know mainstream superheroes uh, created for uh, you know big corporations. By the same token, I think he was glad to do work uh, 
you know, for a DC, you know, to have his work published by DC when when they did that, and you know, and, and uh, when, I mean, when uh, you do mention that though with uh, him in the mainstream, I know at one point he was also rumored to be the uh, replacing writer uh, for Howard the Duck back in I think the 1980s with uh, Harvey. Uh, but he never actually uh, did it, did he? No, he never did. But he was uh, he was rumored as one of the names. You know what? I remember uh, him coming in for a meeting with Denny O'Neill. That's right. He did come in. I didn't get to meet him that time, but he did come in for a meeting with Denny. Who uh, I feel like out of everything, that would have been the perfect character for him to work on. Maybe, except uh, you know, remember the trouble Harvey had uh, when he was uh, you know was a guest on the David Letterman show. I think so. You know, Harvey was a. Harvey was a regular guest on Letterman, and uh, you know I think Harvey uh, felt like he was being paraded out, sort of like a little bit of a freak, you know. But he put up with it because he thought he would sell that he could sell comics, and, uh, and you know, and I think and I think he enjoyed sort of you know verbally sparring with Letterman. Ultimately, they ended up, uh, you know, I think. Um, you know, agreeing to disagree. I think they ended up. Uh, it was it was entertaining, but sort of unpleasant. I, you know, I'm not sure if later in life, you know, uh, they reconciled. So I think Harvey would have had the same experience at Marvel. I just think, you know, I think the minute somebody would have come to Harvey and said, you know, well, we can't have that in a Marvel comic, or we can't insult, you know, uh, this corporation or that one, I think Harvey would have been out the door. You know, so I I don't. You know, like I said, I think he did appear in one story where he meets the thing, um, and um, I'm thinking maybe Dean Hatfield drew it. I'm not sure. For some um, reason, the idea of uh, Harvey P. Carr meeting Jim Shooter would be one of the most entertaining uh, conversations to ever witness. They must, yeah, they must have met Harvey. They used to go to the same conventions. Wouldn't surprise me if if they met. Harvey would talk to anybody and argue with anybody. You know, um, you know, he he was a guy who who enjoyed that. Um, I, I just, I don't know. I, I just don't see him lasting, you know, sort of what Marvel did in general. You know, what, what, you know, was stuff that he was not interested in. You know, I think he was much right. more interested. I mean, I, you know, I get the Cleveland thing and, and, and the curmudgeon thing, which is probably why, you know, he came in for that meeting with Denny in the first place. Um, doesn't seem to me like something that would have lasted more than a month. <laughs> it, would, it would have led to a great five-issue arc though, of Howard the Duck uh, collecting uh, Jazz well, 45. It would have led to a great five-issue arc with, four, with the last four issues written by somebody else. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh, well, going back, like you said, uh, Danny, about being old enough with WBI and stuff, I got into comics in the mid to late 70s, so I was a just getting into my early teenage years, and I'd heard about and seen ads in some of the comics for, but never got knowing too much about the Mary Marvel Marching Society, and even how long it lasted. I know it started in '64, but is there a question? Yeah, <laughs> a little bit about about that. Uh, how, oh. You know, a Stanley con- creation concoction, and uh, I assume it generated like with other things that Stan did to engage the audience in as many different methods and ways as possible. This was one of them. Well, you know, Stan, as I said, because he was, you know, kind of a natural marketer, I think a lot of things that Marvel did, you know, that, you know, that Stan did were kind of updated versions of things that Stan 
remembered from his own childhood, you know, or or from earlier years in comics. So I think he and and, and you know somebody actually mentioned to me uh, um, that that I think they were right that he also, you know, having a teenage daughter and living in the suburbs, he I think he must have seen like the Beatles fan clubs were very popular. Which they were. The Beatles had an incredible following, and 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 a very you know they had a whole office that dealt with uh, their official fan clubs. So he mu- never heard you know, of him. He 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 looked you know I guess he looked around and 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 uh, and and came up with this club. He liked writing you know he liked writing theme songs you know like the Marvel Marching Society uh, thing, you know. So so I think he just felt let's give people a club. Let's make it. You know, I, I guess he also made it so that while if you were 10 or 12 years old, you could take it on a literal level. If you were a college student or in your 20s, there was enough ironic detachment uh, in it in it uh, as well. So that you, you know, I mean, actually, I've um, recently been speaking with um, the Tulenko brothers, who, uh, if you know your Stanley history, or your Marvel history, they were the Princeton students who came, who invited Stan to speak at the Princeton, and also came to the Marvel offices, and they, um, you know, because they were the Princeton branch of the Mary Marvel Marching Society, and they presented Stan with an award from the Whig, Cleosophic, and Theosophic Society, whatever, whatever that was. Right. Um, so I think I think I think for Stan it was fun. He had a lot of energy and uh, and did the extra work. Obviously, it was good for the company to make the money. I have to say, considering what they sent you, you know, for your for a dollar, including a record and and a bunch of other uh, items, I wonder if they even made much money. On, mm. on, you know, I mean, yep. by, you know, uh, I mean uh, that was, you know, it seems in, you know. So I think the the, the triple MS. Um, right, I guess if 64 sounds about right for when it started. And then, you know, I think ultimately Goodman, uh, Martin Goodman, the publisher, just thought that it, that it was, you know, um, that it was taking too much time and energy from Stan. Because, I mean, the weird thing is, of course, you know, if you have 50,000 kids sending in dollar bills, you have $50,000 bills, and you know, and that means fifty thousand kids who and their parents are going to be mad if you don't respond. So it's an incredible clerical and bureaucratic thing to keep track of, you know, just to send all this stuff out. So, it's, so I think I think Goodman, uh, you know, didn't want to spend on whatever extra staff they would need, uh, and and so the company just kind of so the the. Um, uh, the club just kind of faded away. It's, I mean, the, the the amazing thing about it is, you know, the only other club that I remember from that era was the Superman of America, which was DC's club, and you could join that for a dime. Mm. And you got some stuff in them. You got like a Superman, like you got a decoder. I think you got a ring, maybe, and you got a um, uh, a, a like a. A, a, a chart that was a decoder of like nine alien languages, and then they'd have a secret message in a lot of the uh, co- a lot of the Superman comics, 
And the message always just said, by the next issue of Action Comics. Yeah. really anything. You, know, you, tr- you spend an hour translating, by the next issue of Action Comics featuring Superman. Where the action is. Yes. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, but, but, I mean, considering that it, was, that it cost a, you know, a thousand percent more than the nearest rival, it's pretty good that so many people actually joined. And one of the things with, you know, the Marvel brand is big now, but it was on its way, especially back, you know, during that time, you see a lot of different things like different bands, you know, utilizing the characters in their music. For example, the band The Traits ended up doing a song called Nobody Loves the Hulk, which we're going to share on the Facebook page afterwards. It's, you know, great song, but it's like, did Stan realize at that time just how big it was going to be? Or was it just like, oh, this is just another job? Uh, did he realize that the that the, the society or that Marvel itself was going to be that big? That Mar- Marvel in general. I think he realized. You know, there's there's. It's funny, you know, comics history. Uh, depending, on, I guess, like any history, depends on your point of view. I mean, there there you know there are there are people who are you know smart you know accomplished people who really think that comics. Were a nickel and were literally a nickel and dime business until the Batman movie in 1989, because that's when merchandising took off. You know, and where the where the really big money was to be made. Um, but I think Stan knew that there was a phenomenon. Uh, I think when he started getting letters, you know, from kids and from college students and from adults, whereas before they'd gotten little or no mail. You know, I think mail started coming in and. And I think people then, you know, I think over at DC Comics, Julie Schwartz and Mort Weisinger and other editors there, you know, they, they, they were getting mail, but it was mostly from children, and, and, and they answered it very seriously. You know, they would answer it, you know, as if, you know, as if you were writing a letter to a, you know, a scholarly literary journal. Is, is, you know, they weren't quite that uh, somber, but, you know, they, they answered the letters in a very serious uh, manner uh, without a whole lot of personality. So I think once, you know, it was like a feedback loop. Sand would try this stuff, he'd get good feedback, he'd get more letters, sales would go up. Um, you know, uh, although, uh, you know, although frustratingly they couldn't, they were, because of different because of circumstances in the 50s, they were, Marvel was being distributed actually by DC in effect. Mm-hmm. So DC limited them um, until 1968. To you know, to around ten, uh, eight or ten titles a month. Although you could see the that that could vary. It could be you know twelve or fourteen. But they they couldn't expand the way they did starting in '68. But I, I think Stan, yeah, I think he, I think he knew it. I, and I, I and I think he always figured that the att- big attention and big money would come from some kind of Hollywood connection. He was you know he was very much. Uh, aware of that, and I think Martin Goodman was too, because Goodman put out a lot. You know, we, we're now finding there've been scholars like uh, J. L. Mast and uh, and some other people. Uh, J. L. is working on a graphic novel about uh, the Goodmans, uh, about Martin Goodman and Stan Lee that, uh, that he's writing and drawing that should be amazing. But um, you know, I think Goodman thought, okay, it's nice they're popular, but it's never going to be a big money maker. You could sort of tell. Because they would sell the rights to the characters to different studios for, you know, next to nothing. You know, somebody would give them like five hundred dollars for the rights to the Fantastic Four, and and you know, and 
and Goodman would think, what a jerk. He just gave me $500. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, well, on that topic of music, too, and I thought Peter was going to hint at this one, but in the book and a couple years before the traits in 69, you got Country Joe and the Fish in 67 with that song Superbird that right. uh, references President LBJ. And uh, I, I found two versions, actually. One's like two minutes, one's a minute and a half longer. But they, they vary it up because they mention, well, they mentioned Fantastic Four and Doctor Strange in the right. first one, the shorter one. And then it gets changed up to the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man. And I don't know what the need was to, to redo it, make it longer, change the name. I don't know. Well, well, there's a version that came out about seven or eight years ago because when I did the Stanley Universe book with Roy, um, you know, and I'd gone to Stan's archives and I found all this correspondence from the uh, Country Joe and the Fish uh, organization, um, and I realized how many times, according to the bullpen, they they visited uh, the bullpen bulletins. They visited Stan. I interviewed uh, 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 two of the fish, <laughs> and one of them, David. <laughs> that just sounded funny. Yes, so. David Bennett Cohen. If you know the uh, Feel Like I'm Fixing to Die album, he's the wizard on that cover. Uh, David Bennett Cohen lives in the New York area, so I did some events in New York, and he actually was inspired. Um, by, you know, he's a, you know he's a musician. He loves to play, so he brought his keyboard, and it was me, him, Al Jaffe, I think, uh, Denny O'Neill, doing a panel about stands about ten years ago at the old Museum of Comic and Cartoon Art. And David was so inspired that he made an album with some other like '60s uh, uh, rock uh, luminaries, and uh, they read they did they did a version of Superbird for that album too. And the only other musical reference I had actually known before then, I really have to be more familiar with it, I got it a while ago, was the, in the 70s, 77, 78, the uh, Spider-Man, Reflections of a Superhero record. Right, Reflections of a, Rock Reflections of a Superhero. Thank you. Yep, yep. Um, and, and the other, well, I guess the other odd connection, which I don't think had directly to do with Stan, was at one point, uh, I think around 1970, uh, the Mothers of Invention were regularly advertising in the Marvel comics. I don't know if they advertised in D.C. Uh, as well, but they definitely advertised, I think it was their album, We're Only In It For The Money. They, they, I remember uh, Freak Out. Yeah, well, this, this was, you know, I guess, uh, an album or two after that. But they definitely were advertising, you know, you know, somebody, either Frank Zappa or somebody at uh, Reprise, you know, um, must have thought, that um, there was a commonality between the rock audience and the Marvel audience. I think, I think the Country Joe and the Fish, um, you know, was was a special thing because, you know, those guys, uh, a bunch of the guys in the band were actual fans, you know, mm-hmm. which is not to say they weren't in other bands, but for some reason um, this was the one that, that, that clicked and that came to visit uh, regularly. And there, there definitely is a big connection between, you know, especially Marvel Comics and the rock music scene. You know, in the 1970s, you have Paul McCartney doing uh, Magneto versus, I think, what, what, what was it? Magneto, Magneto and versus... Titanium Man. Magneto yeah, and Titanium uh, Man. That one, and, you know, he brought Jack Kirby up on stage. Uh, what else? We got, you know, a lot of stuff like that, but just the connection... And I know so many people that are heavily into the rock music scene. There's a place by us called uh, Rock Fantasy where they have, like, their uh, pinball trophy. When you do pinball there and you win, you hold this little Hulk head thing from the 1960s. It's like a little uh, Halloween uh, uh, candy. Well, you know, uh, it's funny. Area. The thing, you know, back in the 50s when there were the Senate hearings and all the, 
you know, or the big to-do about uh, how comics were um, making uh, kids into juvenile delinquents and, um, and you know, there's Frederick Wortham and, and, and many other people who were... Oh, Seduction of the Innocent? Yeah, Seduction of the Innocent, when there were all those people crusading against comics. Um, I think the thing that ultimately took the heat off of comics was rock and roll. You know, it was like, yeah. I, I think as soon as rock became popular... Uh, somehow the same people who were concerned that comics were ruining youth focused their attention on rock music. So, <laughs> so you know, comics, I guess, sort of owed rock and roll a dead in that sense. You know. uh, looking at the Silver Surfer, quote, graphic novel, I don't think I ob- uh, overly or face front realized the uh, comparison that the characters were making to the creators. Um, it's a really good story, no question about it. I honestly thought they were going to bring up perhaps in a little respect to that female character that was supposed to um, accompany or be with the surfer. But it's a great, again, story with the surfer, Galactus, comparing um, Marvel or Stan as Galactus and Jack Kirby as as the surfer. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I was, pr- I was proud of that interpretation. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, yeah I, now that it's like, okay, yeah, it was, it was out there somewhere and it just had to be put in front of my face to go, oh, yeah, okay, I can see that, you know. I just have to say, Eddie, we have brought up Silver Surfers more times than I even admit we have in the past. Like well, in the last, I think, five or so episodes. This is true. Crazy. Yeah, this is true. And uh, but but fittingly, and um, and even going now to another publication that was out with the with the what if and the original Marvel bullpen, the little discrepancy as to which character was going to be in here. And but I think um, you know it just made sense that Roy Thomas not be in it because he wasn't one of the original ones. Right. Uh, yeah, and they, and they were, I guess they replaced him with, uh, with Saul, right? With Saul Brodsky? Yes, right. Yeah, I mean, well, look, that, that, that's such a strange comic that that exists at all, you know. This is true, um, because I think, I, I don't know, just maybe for the casual comic book reader and or just naive like I tend to be quite a bit, is that, uh, all right, here's the next issue of What If, um, who are these guys? Oh, they're the ones who put this stuff together. So let's plunk down the 65 cents or whatever it was then and, and read that one. So... And you go on to the next one. Not that you're thinking of collecting in the series back in that time frame or anything, but still, yeah, a, a little odd in that way. But to, uh, I don't know, maybe make another connection with the, with the fans so you know more and have that more intimate relationship with who your audience is kind of thing. Well, I think what if, by definition, if you're not kind of a hardcore fan, you're not really buying what if. You know, it's sort of, mm. you know, just the, the, the idea that you're buying a comic who's, premise is an alternate version of another story, you know, I think indicates, I mean, I guess, you know, somebody could just buy it by chance or like the cover or something, but I think if you're buying that, you have some, you know, emotional investment in in an alternate world. So, uh, and, and there was a tradition of that in comics. I mean, you'd often see, you know, the DC um, people in their comics, and Stan and Jack had shown up in a lot of comics. It just, it just seemed like an odd thing for that period where Kirby had left Marvel and he'd come back and he was on his way out the door and suddenly here's this story, um, you know, and, he, and he'd done this uh, story about a character called Funky Flashman back at DC, which was really a kind of an attack on, on Stan in many ways. And, and suddenly he's back doing this story about what is the Fantastic Four with the original Marvel bullpen. You know, I mean, to me it just indicates more how how the, the relationship between all those people was not as simple as everybody, you know, or, or that a lot of people like to think, you know. 
you know, I, I think comic fans, and, I, and I'm as guilty of it as anybody, you know, um, but I try to sort of check it in myself because we so much love stories about good and evil and heroes and villains. You know, we forget that in real life and in Marvel comics, mm-hmm. things are not always that simple. You know, I mean, that was sort of Marvel's innovation in a, in a large way was, oh, these characters are not, you know, simply black and white. They're, you know, more like actual humans who you know, might love and hate and and admire and uh, loathe somebody at the same time. <laughs> yeah. We do, Danny, have, uh, we sent out a Facebook posting that we'd be speaking and taking a few uh, a few questions, so I want to get to that in a, in a, a minute or two and, okay. and finish up. I, I had one other note that I put down here, and that was that, uh, and I don't know if there's too much to talk about it, but Stan hated sidekicks. Did he not uh, uh, write about them or... Uh, push them aside maybe or just let whoever the creator was of the sidekick go and say, all right, let's see where this one goes? I, I, you know, I think, look, that's, that's the thing he always said, and I guess it's true. I mean, he, um, you know, that's one of those stand things I think you have to take with a grain of salt. He probably didn't like sidekicks, um, but he did, you know, he, he would eventually write Bucky and Captain America, you know. Um, you know, sidekick is a weird thing. Um, because it's sort of a throwback to an earlier age, you know, you know, 1930s or 40s, a lot of, you know, pop culture characters and comics and movies and radio had kids hanging around them, and you know, you, you, you know, the stories never got so gruesome or so grim that it was that it was a problem, and it did give the hero somebody to talk to and somebody to bounce jokes off of, or to you know, um, and duck behind, you know, and, and duck behind Peter. And duck yeah. behind. Okay. Well, <laughs> once in a while, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but it, but when you think about it, it's like, wow, I'm a big fearless hero, and I'm so brave, I'm gonna schlep a 12 year old kid into battle with me. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's not. Uh, <laughs> they move fast. Uh, you know, they get you know, in front of the bullet, in front of the hero. So they're huh? fine. <laughs> they, what? What? They move fast. So when you're trying to do comics that have a certain amount of realism, uh, so I mean, I think that was part of the motivation and the origins of, of Spider-Man, that he was a teenager uh, who was not a sidekick. He did, you know, he actually didn't, you know, right, if, you know, in a DC comic of that era, if a kid got those powers, he, you know, it's likely he would have called himself Spider-Boy. But no, here's a 15-year-old kid calling himself Spider-Man. He doesn't want anybody to think he's a kid. I mean, you know, he was his own sidekick. <laughs> you know, he he literally talked to himself. You know, <laughs> and uh, thought bubbles notwithstanding, yes. Uh, yeah. Well, but usually it wasn't thought bubbles. A lot of the time, it would be, I, you know. And Stan was very conscious of balloon placement and thought bubbles and word bubbles. You know, I I, I you know, again, I I wish I had ever said this to him. You know, I or asked him, but. I, I can't imagine that Spider-Man saying things, you know, that he was thinking as opposed to having them in thought bubbles. I have to think that was a conscious decision of Stan, almost maybe as if Spider-Man was speaking to the reader, as opposed, mm. to, uh, as opposed to having some kind of internal dialogue. Stan was scrupulous about about word balloons and where they were placed and how they were placed. That 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 was that was no accident, you know, that that Spidey was spoke like that. So yeah, in general. You know, I think especially in the Marvel era when you're trying to do, you know, uh, comics that have uh, a certain amount of, you know, uh, realism, you know, while still remaining in the, in the fantasy realm, 
yeah, I, I, I think the sidekick would not have fit in. And, yeah, I think in general they were not Stan's favorite thing. Part of, uh, Danny, through throughout the book, there's references, of course, to issues and so on, years and titles and what have you, and there are two firsts that are here, and maybe I need to have this straightened out so I don't ask you <laughs> off the po- off the show otherwise, just so how, how maybe uh, naive I am. But 1966, Fantastic 452, Black Panther, first African-American superhero, if I read it right. No, 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 first black superhero. Black superhero, okay. And But then previously you have Falcon listed also, also as a first. Falcon's the first African-American. Thank you. Okay. Black Panther is an African. I, see, I wrote African. one across the other out, so I confused myself. There we are. Okay. okay. So I thought, wait a minute, I thought one, you know, no, they both have their own f- distinguishable right. titles. Nobody else has told me that I got that. Um, that no, wrong. I just needed clarification. That's okay, just me. Yeah. Got it. Well, there's one yeah. last thing, too, that I'm thinking of, and again, if it's not something that needs to be talked about, fine, but a uh, bunch of names in throughout later Stan's years, and I'm talking about early 2000s thereabouts, right. and some names are dropped that reminded me of it, too. But um, Pamela Anderson is, is a name that's just dropped as to people he interacted with, and that reminded me of this, of his creation, Stripperella. Right. Um, no cause for need to mention, talk about. My my overriding question is why, and, I, and I'm kind of thinking maybe trying to reach a different audience. You know, Stan was 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 up for trying anything. Mm-hmm. You know, he, uh, you know, so I I never asked him about Stripperella. I just thought that, you know, whatever time I had to talk with him, I didn't I didn't think Stripperella was that important uh, to my you know understanding and what I wanted to talk about. Stan loved working in collaboration with people. He loved telling stories. I think he was starstruck. He liked working with Hollywood celebrities. Um, you know, and, and don't forget, you're in Hollywood. You know, Stan spent all those years pitching idea after idea after idea after idea. You know, you go, you know, I mean, there's, you know, there's a cover in the book how he would just go to endless, you know, anybody would, everybody would take a meeting with Stan Lee because he's Stan Lee. But not, you know, but then when it comes time to committing money uh, to a project, that, that's much harder to do in Hollywood, you know, and it's, for, and it's always easier to say no to a project. So, you know, look, maybe Stan had a hundred projects that he pitched that year and the one that somebody decided was commercial and they and they could uh, you know make some money from from airing was was the stripperella you yeah. know I mean, you know he um not everybody is always the best judge of their own work you know uh, i'm a bob dylan fan and uh you know, there's you you some you know they put out what they call the bootleg series of stuff that was left off of earlier albums, mm-hmm. and some of the stuff is much better than the stuff that went into the albums. That obviously Dylan himself thought, well, no, this is I don't want this album. You know, you know, these are the songs I want on the official albums. These are the ones that are going to be on the cutting room floor. You know, I think maybe, you know, I think Stan just liked to be working. He liked to be have his name out there. He liked to be involved in creative stuff. I have to admit, I've never actually watched an episode of Stripperella. You know, uh, lucky maybe, you. Maybe, it, maybe as a biographer, I should have. So, for all I know, they're great. You know, but uh, narrator. You know, he just liked not. to work and do stuff with interesting people. It's uh, it's something that I think I stumbled upon and didn't uh, watch all of. But for what it was, uh, it's a different form of entertainment, and so no judging here. But Peter, yeah, narrator says, yeah, you're better off. Yeah, it was but, pretty awful. But I also, you know, <laughs> in your answer to that, I was thinking, too, that uh, on a tangent, perhaps, is one of the many 
cameo characters that Stan did, and this one was from Deadpool, and he is the strip club disc jockey. Give it up for chastity. <laughs> you know. Wow, it's like Stan Lee's in the room with us right now. Stop it. <laughs> I think I'm out Stop of questions. Way. Well, what I wanted to know about was in regards to Stan's love of one character, it felt like more than anything to the point where when someone finally started working on this character, he was actually kind of hurt. And that's the Silver Surfer. And I realize we're going back again to the Surfer, but what was Stan's connection with the character? You know, that's, that's a, you know, I mean, I write about it and I kind of take various guesses at it. it um, there was something about that character that he felt um, very proprietary about, and so did Kirby, you know, which that made for some ill will. But uh, um, I guess because he was uh, literally a tabula rasa, he was a blank slate, um, there was, I think it came about at a time where Stan, you know, I mean, he was in his mid. 40s, uh, you know, mid-late 40s, and maybe he just felt, well, you know, I'm not going to write that great American novel, and, you know, in those movie, you know, maybe I'm not going to go to Hollywood. Uh, you know, this, this could be my only chance to put on record my feelings about hum human existence and man's place on Earth and in the cosmos, and, and this character... Um, you know, just is the one that grabbed him. I, I, I you know, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you really why. I mean, I, I guess I'll, you know, I guess, you know, I, I've guessed at it in the book, but there's something about this blank slate um, that that he just uh, responded to. I mean, I, I mean, it's funny. It, it could, you know, I guess the guy was very enamored of Hollywood and obviously ended up living there the last uh, thirty or forty years of his life. So maybe he, um, maybe the fact that Silver Surfer looked like an Oscar statuette was appealing to him, you know. <laughs> Which you know, before I, I was, uh, did Black Panther get nominated for an Oscar after Stan's passing, or before? I think he was. Oh, that's a good question. I think it was probably after because he, he died at the end of twenty eighth. When I think the nominations came out, that 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 I'm not sure, but uh, yeah. Because it, it's like one of those things where, you know, if that's the case, he didn't get to see it happen, but one of his creations led to it not just getting nominated for an Oscar, not like, you know, Best Screenwriting Critic or something. It got nominated for Best Picture that year. Uh, well, not for the Oscars. It got nominated for some, in some other groups. The, Oscar, the Oscars did not nominate it for Best Picture. No, but, it was, but, it was, uh, but there were some other, like the, you know, there were some other awards where it was nominated. I just found it. Um, January of 2019 was the Black Panther nomination. Nomination, so, so it would have been uh, after months after he died. Yep. Well, it's funny. I mean, because actually, that's one of the few characters that he gave all the credit to Kirby for. Mm. You know, um, that, and in a way, Doctor Strange. You know, he's a little. You know, those those are the two characters where you know he. He certainly claimed that he added to them and, and fleshed them out, but the, you know, he unambiguously says, Jack, you know, the, the Silver Surfer showed up in this story, and, and I said to Jack, who's the nut on the surfboard? <laughs> yeah. Now, do you think it's time to get to those questions? Uh, yeah, we can do that. Okay, let's start with a uh, friend of the show and friend in general, Stuart Greenberg. And he says, when did Stanley Lieber stop playing the Stanley role 
and actually become the character. That's one part. Okay. Um, I mean, you know, I don't think he legally changed his name until fairly, you know, until maybe even the seventies or eighties. You know, I, I don't think I think in his mind they were never really two different people. I think they were just. You know, it's kind of like saying, when did Peter Parker become Spider-Man? Well, the great thing about Spider-Man is that he was always Peter Parker with the mask or without. I think, mm. I think you know, uh, you know, I don't think Stan walked around his house going, Excelsior, true believer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that would make a great uh, in-camera show, though. I think, uh, I think he just uh, <laughs> emphasized different parts of his identity, uh, uh, depending on what role he was expected or wanted to play in a given situation. Mm-hmm. Peter, you said that would make a what? A great hidden camera show. Hidden camera show. <laughs> Just him yelling Excelsior. This era's candid camera, yeah. Uh, he also, Stewart also asked, how did Stan feel about his relationship with Kevin Smith? Um, that, I, I don't have any special insight into that. I think, mm-hmm. I think Stan was very fond of him, you know. I think, that, I think it was a mutual admiration society. You know, Kevin loved Stan. He's, you know, certainly he was, you know one of the more visibly publicly um, devastated people when Stan died. I think, yeah, yeah I, I don't know anything special about that relationship beyond it just seems they were both quite fond and, and uh, admiring of each other. There's a I qu- know when everything was going on, that Kevin was offering Stan to live at his house with him, you know, when the whole right. Uh, right. the caretaker thing was going on. He openly right. said, I'll let you live in my house with me. Right, well, yeah, I think, I guess, was, yeah, so that, that certainly answers that that side of it, and I never, you know, I never had any, re- you know, reason to think it wasn't reciprocated. You know, so if you look at Mallrats, you see Stan's role there. Uh, I'm guessing he didn't get paid an awful lot of money to do that. I think he just enjoyed working with Kevin. Okay, another question. This one's from uh, Andrew Rugg. If I said it wrong, Andrew, I'm sorry, R-U-G-H. Or and Matt Turner, I his think... other name. Okay, and, uh, and well, another another input from Rick Parker, but I think the answer, the short answer is yes, but Danny, you wrote about this and it's, uh, did Stan and Jack Kirby patch everything up before Jack passed? Um, you know, um, Stan says they did. Stan uh, talks about seeing Jack and Jack saying to him, Stan, you have nothing to feel bad about. Uh, um, you know, I know Stan attended Jack's funeral, and um, and he and Roz uh, spoke. You know, I, I think, you know, and ultimately Marvel uh, you know, slash Disney did make uh, what's reported to be a very uh, amicable deal with the Kirby family. Um, that's, that, that's uh, you know, I, I, I think so. You know, and I certainly I think... Stan was always, always claimed to be mystified and 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 didn't understand, you know, the ill will that uh, that Jack and uh, that Jack bore to him at different times. Um, you know, I don't know if that was just PR spin or if he really truly um, didn't believe it. That you know, that that's sort of where, you know, Stan the public guy and Stan the private guy are hard to. Uh, discern. I, I think he loved Jack. He loved working with Jack. I think he felt he did as much for Jack as he could, whether that, you know, I mean, if Stan Lee had marched into uh, whoever owned Marvel at the time, their office, and said, 
if you don't give Jack Kirby more money and credit, I'm leaving, I think a lot of times they would have said, okay, bye. Mm. You know, I think people forget that Stan was not always seen as this. You know, my understanding from, from my conversations with Stan and, and, uh, and Joan is that pretty much anytime anybody knew bought Marvel, the first thing they said was, why are we paying this guy Stanley all this money? What's he done for us lately? So, I, you know, I mean, I think while the comics fans and movie fans, Stan is, you know, is God. I think the people, you know, in these higher corporate positions, he's just some guy, you know, who maybe they liked when they were kids. But, you know, but what, you know, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if he had that kind of superpower to walk in and demand justice, you know, for Jack Kirby. I don't, you know, I don't know if any, I, think, I don't know if there are people, you know, who, I don't know many people who would have, you know, uh, would have or could have, you know, but, but certainly the idea that Stan could just wave a magic wand and the executives would, would bend to his will. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, I think, I think on the one hand, yes, he was Stan Lee, and, and uh, you know, he's got this incredible track record. But I think to a lot of people, he was just like another schmuck with a, uh, with a typewriter, you know. Danny Fingeroth, A Marvelous Life, The Amazing Story of Stan Lee. How can people get the book? Uh, at all the usual suspects, um, you know, if, uh, I'd say that's your best bet. You know, I mean, I'd, uh, you know, I'd encourage you to support your local independent bookstore, but certainly it's available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, I've done the audio book, which if you've made it through this uh, lengthy interview and you are still not sick of my voice, well, now the audio book could be 14 hours of me reading uh, to you, right into your ear, and there's also a large type book. And... Uh, and yeah, but it's available everywhere unless they're sold out. And also, how can people get a hold of you on social media? Uh, Danny at DannyFingeroth.com is the best bet. I'm also active on social media, mostly Facebook, but uh, on Twitter sometimes too. But uh, you know, I'm 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 not that hard to find. Uh, Danny Your Twitter name is pretty original, huh? Your Twitter name is pretty original. Uh, pretty clever at Danny Fingeroth. <laughs> All right, Danny, thank you so much for your time. On a personal note, Danny, uh, you're one of the several names that I've seen just reading the comics on the front page. You know, those names, those names. I'm like, oh, I know that name. So it was really fun to be able to talk to you. Well, thanks. I really appreciate you taking the interest in the time. And uh, let's do it again sometime. So for The Marvelous, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Danny Fingeroff. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior!